listening to Local Bites, the podcast of local futures and the economics of happiness. In this series, we feature critical voices and inspiring examples from the global movement to resist the power of giant corporations and to renew ecological, social, and spiritual well-being through a systemic shift towards local economies. I'm Sean Keller. Over the next few episodes of Local Bites, we'll continue to release our series of interviews from the New Economy and Social Innovation Forum in Malaga, Spain. In this episode, Local Futures' Kristen Steele speaks to Jennifer Hinton of the Post-Growth Institute, author of a forthcoming book about how the line between businesses and nonprofit organizations doesn't have to be as rigid as you might think, and how, in fact, a new wave of nonprofit businesses might help take us beyond the toxic mentality of consumerism and competition by encoding different assumptions about human nature into our economic institutions. So basically, I, I wear two hats in the new economy realm. The first one is my work with the Post-Growth Institute, which is a global network of activists and researchers who are trying to look for pathways beyond the growth-based economic paradigm. We have been writing a book the last uh, three or four years now <laughs> in which we describe a post-growth economic model that we developed, which is based on a transition from for-profit business models to not-for-profit business models. And what would an entire market economy of not-for-profit business models look like? And how might it resolve a lot of the issues that we're facing now with the for-profit system? So that's one hat. My other hat is I'm doing a PhD with the Stockholm Resilience Center. And there, so I'm still sort of at the beginning, but I'm trying to map out new economy initiatives in relation to each other, in relation to sustainability goals. And yeah. So could you tell me about your thoughts on the role of the global economy in creating the social and ecological crises that we're facing today? So from the perspective of the, let's say, the for-profit versus not-for-profit divide, I would say the global economy is sort of a, a big for-profit monster in a lot of ways. And in one of the chapters of our book, we describe how this globalized, profit-maximizing monster economy has been sort of a, a natural result of the for-profit business model in terms of, first of all, the social and psychological push to maximize profit, which requires growth. And then, of course, the more that you do maximize profit and accumulate profit as a business owner, the more you can invest in new ventures. It's this wealth begets wealth cycle. And so we see the concentration of wealth and power in just a few hands that are able to continually take more and more of the economy for themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the ways in which the for-profit business model as a legal framework naturally leads to this global monster (laughs) economy. And then another way is the growth mandate, basically, that's built into the for-profit model in terms of that wealth being extracted from for-profit businesses. And then if you look at the economy as a whole, the profits, the surplus of the economy being extracted to just a few wealthy owners' hands, basically then that extraction requires the economy to keep growing. It requires these businesses to keep going to compensate for the wealth extracted. What do you think about the possibility that that is a natural consequence of innate human greed? In thinking about this transition and thinking about 
for-profit and not-for-profit businesses. And then looking at the, the not-for-profit businesses that we've found emerging all over the world in every sector of the econo- economy, um, we've thought a lot about, okay, what is this transition that we're seeing happen? And how could that transition continue to flourish? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? So what we've seen is that, of course, on one level, these are businesses. And this is a business model. It's a legal framework. But on a much deeper level, these businesses and the people that are, are involved in these businesses and purchasing things even from these businesses are participating in a different story of human nature, in a different story of what a business can be, of what the market could be and the economy can be. They're participating in the purpose motive. They're choosing the purpose motive over the profit motive. Mm-hmm which of course implies a different story about human nature, right? It's a story of human nature that at least allows for the complexity for us to be greedy sometimes, but also generous. And what sort of business models do we want? Those that um, encourage greedy behavior or those that encourage generous, altruistic, cooperative behavior. It does go all the way down to what are our stories, our beliefs about human Mm. nature. And so it becomes a self-reinforcing system then, a system that begets greed, which begets then a further growth and absolutely. And Yeah, exactly. And sorry for interrupting, but the, uh, I get so excited. <laughs> Please, carry on. <laughs> but yeah, the story there, right, is if, if human nature is mostly greedy and competitive, then the best way to motivate our behavior in the economy is the profit motive, so that we can accumulate as much as we can as, as these greedy creatures that we are, Um, And then we set up businesses that will allow us to do that. Various kinds of non-profit businesses have been gaining in popularity in recent years, pushing back against the cynical assumption that greed must drive the economy. The history of social enterprises that blur the line between business and non-profit actually goes back to the early 1900s, when the organization Goodwill in the United States began using revenue from repairing and selling donated goods to fund its community outreach and job training programs. Credit unions, which are nonprofit member-owned financial cooperatives, emerged around the same time. And since then, we've seen the emergence of both consumer-owned and worker-owned cooperative businesses, municipal enterprises, which are businesses owned by local governments, often things like electrical utilities, which provide services to regions that a for-profit company would ignore, uh, community development corporations in the U.S., which provide affordable housing and other services, and community interest companies in the U.K. Different countries have different legal frameworks in place to govern how nonprofit businesses work, which are worth looking into if you're thinking of starting one of your own. And of course, there are subtle differences between something like an official tax-exempt nonprofit business and something like a worker-owned cooperative where profits are usually distributed among the member owners. But whether they are technically considered nonprofits or not, what unites this vast and sometimes dizzying ecosystem of different types of business is that they all reinvest money in helping their constituents rather than a group of shareholders at the top. And this is a legal requirement. These nonprofit businesses have a focus on purpose over profit baked into their organizational structure. They don't have shareholders siphoning away the revenue they generate. Instead, they're required to reinvest any money made into the communities they serve in accordance with their mission. What this means is that they can often provide goods and services at lower prices than for-profit businesses can, because they don't have to worry about giving dividends to shareholders. Credit unions, for example, offer their members higher returns on deposits and lower loan rates than for-profit banks. So the nonprofit way of doing business goes beyond just slapping a sense of ethics onto an already existing model, the for-profit corporation. 
Instead, it's a set of powerful new legal and commercial entities taking shape all over the globe and redefining the way incentives work in the economy. So a particular focus for local futures right now is on trade treaties, these international trade agreements. And I'm wondering if how you see those connecting with the work that you're doing. The clearest level for me to look at this is that just like subsidies, just like tax havens, these trade agreements are another way for these large for-profit corporations to grab more wealth and power for themselves. Again, I feel like these subsidies, these tax havens, and these trade agreements are part of the for-profit mentality. They come almost as a natural result of thinking, well, if I'm rational, then I'm supposed to take as much for myself as I can. If I own a for-profit business, then I'm supposed to take as much as I can through that business. And how do I do that? I talk to officials who will give me subsidies. I create tax havens. I try to get trade agreements that favor me. So... I think it just makes sense from the for-profit mentality. And do you think it's possible to have trade treaties then that further the proliferation of not-for-profit businesses? And what would that look like? What would, what would international collaboration look like to create more of a not-for-profit world? I mean, I think that there could be trade treaties that favored not-for-profit and, and discouraged for-profit business even. Even just taking away the for-profit favoring trade treaties would do a lot to allow these not-for-profit businesses to pop up. Great. So I do have one question then about, and particularly related to ecological sustainability, because it does sound like the not-for-profit model is very socially beneficial in terms of leveling out the economic playing field and creating some level of equality on a financial level. But do you think that it's inherently more ecologically sustainable, and in what way? It would be more ecologically sustainable than the for-profit system for a number of reasons, and just a couple of those reasons. The first one would be that if businesses no longer have to grow and no longer have to maximize profit and instead are guided by a, a core social or environmental mission, you no longer have an economy that's just pushing consumerism for consumerism's sake, for, for profit maximization. There wouldn't necessarily be as much a push for people just to consume in order to keep businesses afloat. But that's not necessarily. So again, one of the things that I like to say about the not-for-profit world is that it's necessary but not sufficient because you wouldn't have that space in a for-profit economy. The for-profit economy will always have the profit maximization mandate built into businesses. It's in their legal framework and that's going to continually push us to consume more and more and create a larger and larger market and new niches in the market. We can't have a more ecologically sustainable world within the for-profit economy, and I'm completely convinced of that. Whereas the not-for-profit world might not guarantee that that would happen, but it would at least create the space Mm -hmm. for that to happen. So it's not sufficient. We would still need a lot of work on the ecological front, but it would create the space for that work to actually happen. Mm -hmm. There are many examples that illustrate the power of the non-profit business model. Some of the cases Jen often cites in her talks include renewable energy cooperatives like Som Energia in Catalonia, which offers 100% renewable-powered electricity to customers at prices similar to conventional fossil fuel power, and the Youth Hostel Association in the UK, which uses revenues from its hostel business to fund programs to help low-income city dwellers connect with nature. There's also been great success among nonprofit financial institutions, like Boston Community Capital in the US, 
which has prevented more than 800 home evictions, built or preserved nearly 20,000 units of affordable housing, created over 4,000 living wage jobs, and become one of the largest financers of solar power for affordable housing units in the whole country. Of course, nonprofit businesses can be large, small, or anything in between. But as we'll hear, Jen believes that the mix of incentives in the nonprofit business model would make creating an economy of small and local businesses easier and more viable. So how do you see the not-for-profit business model fitting into a larger vision of localizing the economy? Does that come into the way that you conceive of the transition? So the not-for-profit mentality and the not-for-profit legal structures would at least create the space for things to become more localized again and for small and medium-sized businesses to flourish rather than just being crowded out. In terms of the ecological sustainability factor, again, I think it's enormously important that we localize our economies again. Also for some spiritual sustainability, to be in touch with the land that we live on and to, to know what's around us, to understand the seasonality of our foods even, and these sorts of things. I just think it's so important on so many different levels. Is there any role then still for for-profit business in this model that you're envisioning? That's something my co-author and I have talked a lot about. I mean, we could envision that there would still be some for-profit businesses, some some smaller local businesses that are for-profit. I feel that there would no longer be a need for for-profit business as we transition away from for-profit to not-for-profit business models. Then I think it would just make sense to most people. Why would you have a for-profit business if you could have a, a healthy business that generates revenue and puts all profits into a social or environmental mission? Because that just makes sense on so many levels. And is there anything else that you'd want to tell our listeners about how they can get involved in creating the new economy or get involved in starting or joining a not-for-profit business? You know, I would say keep an eye out, look around you and your community. You'll probably find all sorts of not-for-profit businesses that you didn't even think of as not-for-profits before or non-profits that are doing business and you didn't realize they were doing business before. And, you know, shop with them, see how you can support them. There's all of this stuff is already happening. If you do want to start a new business yourself, if you're in an entrepreneurial spirit, you can go there a lot more and more at least not-for-profit business incubators around. The Post-Growth Institute is running one in Ashland, Oregon called The Not-For-Profit Way. My co-author Donnie McClurkin is running that. And then there's one in Sweden that, I've, that we found that's called Green White Space and lots of ways you can participate in this. Great. Thank you so much for yeah. taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, for me too. Jen Hinton and her co-author, Donnie McLurkin, are expecting to release their book on nonprofit businesses in mid-2019. The book's title is How on Earth? Flourishing in a Not-for-Profit World by 2050. If you'd like to learn more about some of the different types of nonprofit businesses mentioned in this episode, we have links to some terrific resource pages in the description. If you haven't yet, check out our website, localfutures.org, where you can subscribe to this podcast and listen to or download other episodes. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, and your community, and write to us at info at localfutures.org if you have ideas for other people or topics that we should feature on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Local Bites.